Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Are you an independent interpreter or translator wishing to promote your product, training, or service that is specifically targeted for language professionals and have been unsure where to market it? Consider an ad on Brand the Interpreter. To find out more about how to promote your product, training, or service specifically for language professionals on the Brand the Interpreter podcast, check out the episode notes. Welcome back, language professionals, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast, where I share your stories about our profession. Thank you for joining me today. I'm going to take this opportunity to remind anyone that has not had the chance to go on over to your favorite podcasting platform to rate and review the show, that if you've ever had the opportunity to listen to something and have really enjoyed it, or the podcast has somehow uh, been your companion in a drive and you really enjoy the guests on the show, that you please head on over, take one to two minutes of your time and rate and review the show. It means a lot to me personally, but of course it does a lot for the show and the analytics and just getting the word out that this show exists for any language professional around the world so that they're able to come across it. I would really, truly, sincerely appreciate it. Remind your colleagues to do the same as well. For today's episode, I'd like to give a fair warning that the content of today's episode may be sensitive in nature to some listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Imagine for a moment that you've made the decision that you're going to create your own language services company so that you may freelance and provide interpreting services in your area. One night in the middle of the night, you get a phone call from a local church when you pick up The person on the other end frantically tells you that they have a young girl there and that they don't understand what she's saying. When they put the young girl on the phone, all you hear is, help me, they're trying to sell me. This scenario actually took place and this story belongs to an interpreter by the name of Richard Aviles, who after taking that one phone call in the middle of the night, became a human trafficking interpreter for the next three years. And today, he joins the Brand the Interpreter guest list to share his impactful interpreting stories with you. So without further ado, please welcome Richard Aviles to the show. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I, Like I've told you before, I listen to your show regularly and I'm, I'm actually very excited to be here. Oh, I'm happy to hear. I'm excited to share the crazy stories that I'm about to get into, or we're about to get into more you than me. I'll definitely be uh, very in tune to what you're going to share. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. Not a lot of people um, really 
take the time to to sit down and talk in as in depth as you have probably out of the couple thousand interviews I've done you're probably the most in depth person the for the pre meeting at least you're very in depth more, well thank more you most people yeah thank you Richard yeah and I think it's it's definitely important to share uh, this particular side I did. Uh, put in a disclaimer at the beginning, just so that people are aware of the sensitive nature of this particular episode. Uh, but I do feel that it is uh, important to to get the stories out there and for people to just know what actually exists. And then, and then, of course, on the side of the interpreter, what is going on. So that's all we're going to say right at the beginning. You'll have to <laughs> wait until we get to that point, right, Richard? Because first and foremost, let's get to know Richard, the individual. Richard, you grew up, well, you were born and raised in Puerto Rico. Tell us what a fond childhood memory of yours is from out there. My favorite memory of Puerto Rico, I didn't realize it until, I'm going to move this a little closer because I don't like how it's sounding. I didn't realize this memory. Actually, you you said that before, and I, I was in my head thinking, trying to think what memory was my fondest one, because uh, no one's ever asked me that. But I think the most fond memory that I have of Puerto Rico didn't hit me until I got married uh, four years ago. And it was the fact that I grew up in an island that was surrounded by the ocean and we could just throw a rock and go to the beach. Whereas I live in Missouri now <laughs> and that's not a thing. And I took that for granted until I married my wife and we were, you know how it is when, uh, I don't know if you're married or if you have a significant other, but you know how it is when you're sharing stories of high school or growing up with other people and, you know, people come from different cultures, different come, people come from different backgrounds and, we were at a family event and they're like, yeah, when I used to cut class in high school, we'd go uh, riding bikes and this. Richard, what would you do? I'd go surf. And everybody just looked at me like, what do you mean you'd go surf? I go, well, it's a hundred. Uh, Puerto Rico's 100 by 32. So, you know, I was in Ida Sea. Well, just throw a rock, cut class and I'd go surfing. The beach is right there. Like, right. You can see it from the school. And that's probably like the thing that I I. I've come to discover that's like so beautiful that like you don't really appreciate what you had, what I had at that moment, because it's like, I've been living here for 15, 16 years at, you know, at that point in my life. And now I'm 36 and I'm like, man, <laughs> I really took that for granted. That's honestly like my fondest memory. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. I think especially looking back at our childhood, like you said, in the moment, we're not really thinking about. Uh, you know, let let me appreciate what I have, of course, right? It's not until we're looking back and realize like, man, I had it good. Like at least, at least yeah. in the setting, it was definitely a good place. I, I absolutely agree. After a while, you you ended up uh leaving the, the leaving Puerto Rico and coming mm -hmm. into the States because you joined the military. Is that correct? Yeah. Where yeah. yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, most people don't, don't know this about me, but I was uh, homeless for a little bit. Uh, me and my family, we clash heads a lot and, you know, ignorant teenager. Uh, I ended up homeless for a little bit and my grandparents ended up, you know, picking me up and my grandfather told me, he's like, you need to do something with your life and you need to do something that's productive, meaningful, and that 
you're going to look back and you're going to love. So I went job hunting. Um, and one day I was in, in La Numero Do, highway number two, and I'm walking and it's scorching hot. And this car pulls up and he goes, hey, man, do you need a ride? And I was like, in my head, I'm like, well, the worst that happens is I get kidnapped. So I was like, yeah. So I jump in the car and this gentleman had like a nice polo. His name was Ismael Delgado. At that time, he was a staff sergeant in the military, which is pretty up there. And he's like talking to me for a few minutes and we're talking in English and Spanish. And he goes, hey, man, if you ever need a real job, here's my card. And he hands me his, his business card. And he was an army recruiter. And six months after that, I, I shipped out January 8th of 2008, right after uh, Lo Gelle, right after, because we celebrate three holy kings in Puerto Rico. So I shipped out as a 31 Bravo, which is what's called your MOS. Your MOS is your military occupation specialty. And I was a 31 Bravo or 31B, which means I was a military policeman. That's what I, I went in as. And it was a little shocking because I had never lived outside of Puerto Rico. So I had never experienced anything below 65 degrees. And my reporting duty station was Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Are you familiarized with Missouri by any chance? No, not at all. Okay. Let me, let me, let me break this down. Missouri, being a meteorologist, meteorologist in Missouri is probably the easiest job ever. Because it could rain, snow, and then be 100 degrees, and then it snows again, and then we're all back to it again. <laughs> and now here's the thing. In the winter, it gets cold. So when I reported January 8th, it was 17 degrees. No, gracias. Yeah. Uh, you know what happens when a Puerto Rican guy steps out and, and breathes that air? You pass out. You go straight down is what happens. Uh, so I'm coming out of the bus, you know, and they're they're doing what they call the shark attack. It's just where they're screaming at you and they're trying to see how you react in stress is what they're doing. And I'm like, you know, I, my grandfather helped me train for for the military. So it, it, it was, you know, expected. Right. Mm. And <laughs> I step out the bus. And as soon as I step, I went to I went to breathe and I panicked. Because I was like, oh, I, that's not enough air. Like I'm breathing through a straw and I started panicking and it was like a panic attack. And I started going like this and then I just went out and I wake up and like a couple of drill sergeants are on me. And they're still screaming at you. Like they don't, they don't care. <laughs> they're like, he could be dead. Ah! Um, You're going like, down with the screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you falling out of formation? It's just like, <laughs> oh my God. So I come to and... The drill sergeant says, he's like, get a private. He's like, get the a private, get up. And I'm like, yes, drill sergeant. He's like, where are you from? I was like, Puerto Rico. He's like, what part of New York is that? I'm like, <laughs> Puerto Rico. And he's like, what city? I'm like, Arecibo. And another drill sergeant comes by and he starts talking to me in Spanish. And he goes, Donde tu eres? where are you from? I go, Arecibo, Puerto Rico. He goes, have you ever left the island? I go, no. He goes, there's no way. He's like, why is your English this good? And I'm like, Tristan, I'm, I was trained as an interpreter in, in my high school. And I've known English since I was like five. And he's like, is that your first language? I go, no, Spanish is my first language. And he like starts scratching his head. He goes, stop. 
so you speak two languages this fluently? And I was like, so do you. But he had like, so do you. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. Which is how people in the Midwest expect Hispanic people to talk. You know, you have to talk like this. Um, it's a true thing. True thing, Mireya. We're going to get into it. Yeah. Too much so, <laughs> so that's where that's where where I went into the military. Now, if you want specifics on that, you you can tell me whatever you want, but you can ask me whatever you'd like. But that's how I joined the army, the U.S. Army in 2008. Yeah. Well, you mentioned <laughs> just a little bit that uh, you actually had some interpreter training in high school, which here in the States is uh, very rare, if not non-existent, in high school at least. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about uh, that for you. Like, th what was that like for you? How did that come to be? Yeah. So when, uh, and this is actually a question that a lot of interpreters ask me, how is it that I got trained? So, and and you even said that's very unorthodox, but it's like, you understand like, the ethics, you understand translation versus interpretation, sight translation, continuous, simultaneous. What ended up happening was when um, when I went to, to school, I went to what was called back then a commercial business high school. And it was called La Abelardo Martinez Otero. It's called AMO, right? It's in, in Arecibo. It's like a small little college right next to La UPR, uh, UPRA, which is the University of Puerto Rico in Arecibo. So... My mother had gone there. My grandmother had gone there. Many people in my family had gone there. What it is basically is you go in there and you have to be part of FBLA or you have to be part of a group. You have to be part of a, uh, you have to represent the school in certain events, right? Or you have to donate your time to help around the school and like help with certain things. Like you, it's, you have to be very active. Like there is no messing around and you have to be in a business suit. Like that is one of the things that, differentiated that that high school was you had to be in uh navy blue uh top and navy blue bottoms white and or uh khaki uh shirt and then either blue black or red tie red if you were in a leadership position uh black or blue if you were uh if you were not in a leadership position and when i went to take the entrance exam uh, my family was very nervous because that high school was right next to where my mother worked at, uh, which my mother worked in in the courts. She was a stenographer. So I go in and, you know, we do the test and we do everything. And I would always do the English portion and I would do my worst in it. And the reason for that was because English was very easy for me. Because at that point, without realizing it, I had been doing sight translations because I had read like a couple of books and stuff like that. And growing up, my dad always made me carry like a little notebook. And if I didn't know a word, I would go look it up back home, the definition and, and how to utilize it, right? To have context. And this, te this English teacher uh, who I've actually asked her and she would rather remain nameless, um, but she was... She starts talking to me like this, like we're talking. This and that. And she's switching back and forth. And she'd be like, so question. Since when? And I'd answer like in English and in Spanish. And she like sits back and she goes, so clearly you have a very good understanding of English and Spanish. Clearly you've either lived in the States or you just know how to like not have an accent or emulate an accent. She goes, have you ever, do you know what an interpreter is? And I'm like, 
no. She goes, okay. And she like looks at me and my dad is behind me, right? Unknown fact, my dad is a retired 30-year cop. My dad did 20 years of deep narcotic work in, in Puerto Rico. Yeah, most, most people don't know this. Uh, if you go to Google right now and you type in special agent Richard Aviles, the first thing that pop up, that's my dad. When, when I was reporting to BASIC in January 8, he was picking up 450 keys of coke off this dude that was trying to get it on the island. Wow. So that's, that's to give you context of how terrifying my father is, right? This teacher goes, so clearly you understand English. She goes, how long have you been failing the English portion on purpose and why? And I looked at her and I looked at my dad and all I see is my dad just leans in and like looks at me. And I just look back and I'm like, I just don't want to read Moby Dick and I don't want to read all these other dumb books that just they don't interest me. And the teacher's like, all right, well, you're going to you're going to you're going to be in my English class until you leave here. And we get in the car and my dad goes, he goes like this. He said, he goes. How long have you been failing the test? And I was like, since middle school, <laughs> he goes, OK. And like the whole drive home, I'm like, please let a meteor hit us. Please let the rapture begin. <laughs> Please let a car hit us and I'm the sole survivor, you know, because I know when I get home, I'm going to hear a, you know, la chancla. <laughs> so we get home. We we got a call like on our way home. Uh, I never forget. My mom got the call. My mommy was so excited. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they took him. And, and my dad, I think the excitement like overshadowed his uh, anger, you know. So, goodness. yeah. So then throughout for three years. Uh, what she did was is I everybody was doing like this is a noun and this is the past tense and this is the present tense and this is the future tense and this is a verb and I'm in the back taking news articles and translating them. Mm. It was me and this other girl who me and her and were, were we've been best friends since we were like 11 years old named Lorraine, Lorraine Torres Barreto. And we were, we both would do the same thing because we went to school since we were 11, we were together. So we, uh, <laughs> we were in the back, like translating stuff. And then like the first time I translated an article, I never forget. It was a news article about um, some sort of like political thing that happened or whatever. And what ends up happening is that I didn't know how to translate like the word uh, Republican Democrat, non-voter, voting ID, uh, like a bunch of terms that I just didn't really understand. And I just like, in my mind, I was like, okay, if I don't know the term on my first draft, then I'm just going to write it as is and underline, right? Because this was like before computers. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it took me two weeks to translate two paragraphs because she kept, <laughs> no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. And at one point, I remember walking back because I would walk back and I'd be like, fuck this. I should have just taken the classes. I should have I should have <laughs> just not failed the test. And this would have been so much easier. And and I was just so mad. But then after like two weeks, she goes, OK, this is how you're going to break down something. And what she did was is very smart, which I now do with my kid is she said, OK, bring me a magazine of something you like. And it has to be in English. And, I, you know, I've been reading since I was like a little kid. So I had like mountains of book. And my grandfather had uh, in his house, he had a library that was probably uh, twice the size of this studio. So it was about like a 20 by 20, probably like a big square. 
And I like, I, I got this, you know, and I bring back a, a game pro magazine, which they don't exist anymore. Um, and when I bring it back, uh, she goes, okay, so what do you want to talk about? So what she did also was she would make us present about it in, in English and in Spanish. And for two years, every day, um, that's all I would do. Eventually that turned into, I got my first paid gig where I had gotten second place at Improvise Oratory, which I competed every year to represent the school. And what happened was the first place had to, she had won like a math competition or something. And I got called by the mayor, which I have the letter for, for participating as an interpreter. I have to show that to you. Uh, that said, thank you so much for representing the island and ta-da-da-da-da. And what ended up happening was is the the trip was to Florida, to Disney, and I stayed at the Swan and Dolphin. And the gig was is that I had to stay with the teachers at all times because I was going to be interpreting for them. And I was like super excited because I got a check for $500 and it was a seven-day trip. And I did not realize that I was going to have to interpret the whole day. <laughs> And I'm like interpreting instead of enjoying Walt Disney World, dude. Aww. So, yeah. So I, I that was like my first paid gig, which I didn't realize how huge that was until many like 10, 15 years later after that happened, like how big that was. Wow. Uh, and honestly, it wasn't I didn't realize uh, any of that until I, I started teaching with trans interpreting. And I spoke with Edgar and Edgar's like, bro, I've never met someone that's done that. That's not a thing. I go and I showed him pictures. I had those pictures of me. You see me with like with a notebook going like this. Yeah. And then there's people in front of me. And then you see pictures of me in a suit in this hotel. And there's someone behind me and I'm like this. So that was my 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 experience in Puerto Rico growing up to to become sort of like this unorthodox weird interpreter that uh stands in front of you today <laughs> yeah that you were doing little did you know uh escort interpreting right um mm -hmm. escort in the in the positive sense like you know individuals professionals that are uh, going around interpreting for other professionals that's so funny at such a young age did you end up having to utilize your uh language abilities when you were in the military as an interpreter or did that come after you got out? So I'll, I'll explain this to a lot of people because a lot of people think that I was an interpreter in the military, right? In the army, you have an MOS, a military occupational specialty for interpreters. At the time that I had gone in, if you wanted to have a ASI, additional uh, skill identifier, you had to take a test called the Defense Language Proficiency Test, the DLPT. So I took that in 2010 because what happened with me was I it, and, and you'll I don't know. I don't know if you'll get this, but I know most most of your listeners will. I had a lot of culture shock. Because in Puerto Rico, they don't really teach you about American history. They don't teach you. They don't really cover world history. The, it's very um, business focused and like we're going to talk about the history of the island and we're going to teach you English and Spanish and you're going to read Don Quixote. You're going to read this 
and you're going to learn all of these things, but history wasn't a big thing. So when I ended up in the army, I was like, I didn't realize, I didn't realize, by the way, I want to make this very clear before anything, because I think this will make the story a little more understandable. I didn't realize at the time that interpreting was something I could do for a living. I, I just looked at it as something that was like, this is a great skill to have because I can mess with people. And, <laughs> but I didn't realize also the huge cultural gap that I had because people would talk to me about, well, let's talk about World War II. I go, okay, we invaded, we went to Germany because they were doing bad things. We went all the way through here and then we messed them up. Great. Uh, yeah, but there's other things that happen that are also of great importance, right? Um, which, you know, you, we talk about from the military perspective, uh, Sergeant, uh, Major Audie Murphy, who is one of the highest decorated individuals during World War II, who was also a musician and an actor where he made a movie of how he got his Medal of Honor. Have you, have you ever seen this? No, I don't So think. Audie Murphy was, I'll just tell you this and move on from there. So you don't get too surprised. Audie Murphy held back a battalion-sized element of Nazis by himself and ranked over 100 kills in a week. The Nazis would not move past the town that he was holding because they thought that it was a company-sized element. A wow. company in the military is 130 people, right? 100-plus people. A battalion is that six to eight times. He was covered in a, he was in a tower covered in ammunition and he had a little hole where he'd peek and every time he'd see one and he'd just take him and then he moved to the other side. So the sound, mm. so they couldn't identify the sound. They moved to the other side and he ping him and they were like, there's like a hundred people there. No, it was just one man. Crazy. That's it. So that was like part of like the history that I had to learn. So to me, I was on a power curve. And when you're a soldier, Taking a language test is the furthest thing from, from your list of priorities Sure. until it becomes an asset. Mm. Because what happens is in the military, you'll hear this mission comes first. So my mission was to train up to go to war, which I graduated basic training in May, like the end of May of 08, June 25th of 08, I was in Iraq. So what ends up happening is, like I said, remember, mission first, right? So I get a call one morning at about oh three hours and they say, well, we have a family that doesn't speak English. I think they speak Spanish. They're scared. We have multiple patrol vehicles surrounding them. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll get on my Mary four points of contact. I, I get dressed and I go draw my weapon. I get uh, basically at this point, like I'm activated, like I'm, I'm going to go work, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I get to work. I splash my face with cold water to wake up, um, snort a Red Bull or whatever the energy drink at that time was. And I got there. And when I got there, what happened was, is that this, this man had essentially, uh, defecated himself and he was scared to go in because he thought people were going to go in and they were from Mexico. They had come here to see their son. Uh, because Fort Leonard Wood is a base where it's it's a training base. So people can come in and go to see the training areas and stuff. There's certain parts you can't go. You'll get arrested. But people people go there every week to see people graduate basic training in AIT, right? Uh, advanced individual training. So I basically told him, I'm like, you know, it's three in the morning. There's nothing open. And he's just he's in tears. 
And he started hyperventilating a little bit. And I just put my hand on him and I said, Yo vengo ahora, quedes aquí. You know, stay here. I grabbed the patrol car and I went back to my barracks room. And I remember I had like pants from when I was bigger. So I kind of sized them up. I go, he's about like a size 36. <laughs> And I went back, gave him the pants. There's like, you know, he changed his pants and he gave me like a hug and I had my weapon. So like instinctively, I put my hands on his hip and he like, he like immediately understood, like he backed up and he's like, muchas gracias, señor. You know, and I was like, yeah, man, like it's, it's no problem. And the very next day I get called to see the company commander. He goes, you know, heard a, heard a rumor that you uh, helped some people. And I was like, in, in, at first, I thought, oh, I'm going to get in trouble because I went to my barracks room in a patrol car. So mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get in trouble for that. And he goes, uh, you're going to go take the language test. So I, I got that done. And then after that, like I got the ASI for it. I got the additional skill identifier for it. And that was that, that was like my first certificate without you know realizing it. And yeah, it really it really changed my my perspective on how important having another language is mm. because, you know, you grew up in Puerto, I growing up in Puerto Rico, everybody had to know English and Spanish. So I just took that for granted, but man, I'm older now. And the first thing that comes to my mind is I can see so many more memes than everybody else. Like, <laughs> that was like my introduction to like, okay, like I have, I have something here, you know? Mm. The Orange County Department of Education is proud to host their 7th Annual Interpreters and Translators Conference September 29th and 30th at the Hilton Orange County Costa Mesa in Costa Mesa, California. This conference promotes the incredible work of interpreters and translators, bilingual persons, and staff tasked with providing language access in schools and in the community. Know your path. Each Step Matters to Ensure Language Access is this year's theme and main focus. Conference sessions and engagements will respond to the core belief that language access is a foundational part of an inclusive and culturally responsive educational ecosystem. Participants will delve into unique opportunities to acquire and refine their skills, learn tips and strategies to enhance their professional practices, keep up to date with the latest trends, laws, and expectations, and explore the use of diverse platforms and tools that can streamline their language service efforts. Language access is a priority in public education, and as interpreters and translators working in the K-12 system are more visible than ever, becoming a substantial part of every educational encounter, it is imperative to professionalize the field through continuous improvement, training, growth, and networking. The Orange County Department of Education Language Services team is at the forefront of providing these professional learning opportunities and experiences for its interpreters, translators, bilingual staff, school administrators, and community liaisons, and is committed to communicating across cultures to provide meaningful language access to their families, students, and the communities they serve. Join them this fall at the 2023 Interpreters and Translators Conference to continue your professional learning and networking. 
Registration is now open, so head on over to the episode notes to find out more about the Interpreters and Translators Conference, hosted by the Orange County Department of Education's Language Services Division, taking place September 29th and 30th. Hope to see you there. Language Ninja Solutions became yep. basically uh, the the interpreting uh, agency, if you could call it, right? Like yep. an interpreting agency for Missouri. Yeah. This led you to being basically, if somebody were to search you up, they would be able to find uh, Language Ninja Solutions online and be able to give you a call. And in fact... Yes. That is what ended up happening one night, correct? Walk yeah. us through that story of 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 this the, first, the first gonna, case. Yeah, we're gonna get into how you even ended up uh, with this topic of uh, interpreting for human trafficking cases. So, yeah, uh, yeah, share with us that story, would you, Richard? So, I started Language Ninja Solutions in 2017, obviously for tax purposes. <laughs> um, I'm gonna cover this some with my thumb, man. Uh, and I, I, it's, I'm still waiting to to make money out of it. Um, <laughs> still, still waiting, but I'll share, I'll share a lot more here with you just because number one, you'll understand a lot of where I'm coming from. And number two, I, there's a lot of this stuff that I've never told in my courses and I've had people ask me before and I'm pretty skeptical because I don't want to sound negative. But I think there's an old saying in Puerto Rico, el que anda con la verdad anda con Dios. Mm. He who tells the truth walks with God, you know. And what ended up happening was when I started Language Ninja, first of all, the reason I started it was because I got injured. I got my neck injured uh, in jujitsu. Uh, I don't think I told you this last time we talked. I had a called cervical stenosis. So for my medical interpreters, you know how how bad that is. And what was happening was, was I would lock like this, my neck and I would, I would pass out. Like I would black out. And it was because my, my spine had a, it was almost, it was starting to fuse is what was happening. Mm. And it was because of a lot of it was because of damage that I did in the military, because we ended up, I thought it was jujitsu. And what ended up happening was I had a bunch of MRIs and x-rays from my time in the service. And when we started looking at them, you could see that it was getting worse. And it was fine in 2008, 2009, it looked way worse. And then 2011, they did another one and it looked even worse, but it, it just didn't bother me because I was always working out and always going. So I just never like, I had neck pain and I had like pain in the tip of my fingers, right? Um, but I was like, ah, that's normal because I'm always working out. Ah. No, mm-hmm. no, that's not supposed to happen, by the way. <laughs> it is not. So... I started my business because I I couldn't do jujitsu anymore. And I was like really depressed about that. And my friend Lucas Walker gave me the advice, like you should start a language business. Like, I think a lot of people could benefit from that. And I had, I had taught like people's kids Spanish before. And I had done like some translation for people before where they were like, Hey, I need this. And I had my, you know, my, my stuff from the military. So I still kept up with it. What I used to do is, um, I would go, I would find companies that were teaching and I would just go pay for their courses while I was in the military. Cause I was like, I was like, oh, I'm making this much money. The military is not going to teach me. 
but I can take these courses online. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. So I would just throw like 50, 100, $200 on a course. And every month I just take something. Mm. I remember one month I took like guns in Spanish. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that's how you call that in Spanish. Right? Like, yeah. what? Uh, one month I took uh, ethics in uh, legal interpreting. And that's where I realized that the beauty of legal interpreting is you stay neutral. And that comes really easy for me because I have the discipline to just stare at you and say something. And that comes from the military. Mm-hmm. So in the military, you have to like have a, a stupid high level of of like discipline. And when I mean stupid, I mean stupid to the point where I, I've I've done 18, 20 mile ruck marches where I've lost the skin on my feet and I still finish them on time. Like, like that level of discipline. Um, so when I started my business, I was like, okay, I'm going to be on the phone all the time. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And that works for a little bit, you know, for a little bit. But you also have to understand, like, I was... I had started the business. I had just broken up with someone that I'd been in a relationship for about eight years. So I was like the new single business guy. Right. And I had this fancy skill that not a lot of, not a lot of people would see. So I would just charge people like people would send me something and I'd be like, Oh, that'll be two, $3. That'll be $5. That'll be $10, which if you're listening to this right now, this is, yeah, that's not the way to do it. Like that's like some fiber stuff right there. That's, that's the stuff that people who put things through Google translate do, <laughs> but I didn't know better. I just didn't understand because I didn't understand marketing. I didn't understand how to make a market assessment of my skills. And I hate to say this, most interpreters don't. They just don't. And that's okay if you don't, because what happens is is when you start looking at what other people do, and now that we have all this data, you learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. So eventually one night uh, in... I think it was around December or November of 2017, 2017, 2018, because uh, that was around the time that I, I, I got my first case until 2021. So I get a call one morning at around two, one, one to three o'clock in the morning, early hours, and it was on my business phone. And I run outside and immediately I it was a, a church and they said, um, we, we have a person here that is speaking in Spanish, but we're not understanding what she's saying. And she's, she's very neurotic. And I was like, all right, cool. He's like, uh, go ahead. Can you, can you interpret? Can you explain to us? And the whole time they're like, can you, can you interpret? Can you, can you tell us? And I'm like, I said, okay, calm down, you know, calm down. I got this like out of curiosity. How did you find me? Now, a lot of people, when I tell that story, they go, you know, you didn't know at the time that that was a human trafficking victim. That's a selfish question to ask. Well, here's the thing. And I explain this every time that someone says that. What I was doing was I was trying to deviate his attention because when someone's going, (laughs) if you say something that takes them out of it, they stop and their brain goes into like a, a moment of shock where they calm down. That's why you'll see me like to break the tension. What I do with people is I'll tell a joke, right? But I'll take the joke really far. And that way I know they'll laugh and then they reset and they calm down. So that's why I asked him that because he calmed down. He goes, oh, well, we found you on Google and you were like the first option when I put in Spanish translator. I was like, perfect. Go ahead and put her on. And this girl, she starts screaming and I (laughs) never forget. She goes, they're trying to sell me, help me. And I 
immediately like I knew I, I knew what she was talking about because you take a lot of classes in the military about human trafficking and stuff. And my first experience with human trafficking prior to this had been in Iraq, which we can talk about here in a little bit. So I immediately was like, OK, everybody go ahead and pause. You need to call the police. And I said it just like this. I never forget. You need to call the police. Here's my information. Here's my name. Here's my driver's license number, because I know that the cops are going to want to run my information. I know that because as a policeman, that's the first thing I would do. Let me run this dude's information. That way, if an attorney or someone wants to know later on, boom, here it is. You don't have to do that. But like me being in the position that I was, I knew that's what they would want. And I go, if you need anything, just let me know. And I hang up and immediately I'm like, <laughs> the first thought that I had was that's a subpoena. Like that's, that's a subpoena. So I went and grabbed my notebook. At this time, ta 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 zero hundred. Yeah, I took a screenshot of the the call because I'm like, I know I'm gonna get a subpoena for that, so I know that they're gonna ask for all these specifics. What ends up happening is I get a call a couple hours later. I get woken up again, and it's the cops. They go, "Hey, we we heard that you're this person, and we 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 need someone right now, and you have to sign all this paperwork. Uh, you need to give us your rates and ta da da." And I'm like, "Yeah." Uh, he goes, "And just start billing us now. We need you here now." So. I started driving and on the drive there, I was like, how much am I going to charge? Like, I wasn't even thinking of, oh my God, there's this. Cause at that time I, I, they had told me, they're like, we have this girl that's speaking Spanish. We need you to, we have this kid uh, that's in here speaking Spanish that we need you. And I was like, man, Google is on, Google's on fire today. I got two cases. This is dope. <laughs> Cause I hadn't asked them where were they at? Mm-hmm. So I didn't know where, where that call came from. I just saw five, seven, three. Missouri, let's go. What's up? And it's on my business line. So I get there and, you know, they, I go through, they, they search or whatever, and they take me to the interrogation room and the girl starts talking and I recognize her voice. And I said, let me stop you right there. I go, I have to inform you that I believe I interpreted for this person at, at this point, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. Mm. And I go, I believe I interpreted this person and I pull up my notebook and I, go, I interpret at this hour, at this hour, it was from this phone number and they go, all right, give us a minute. And they come back and they say, that's the phone number of the church. They go, yes, this is, this is the person you interpreted for. And they go, is that an issue? I go, it's not an issue for me. I'm just letting you know. Like that way it's easy for you. When you take your notes, that's the same guy. <laughs> so I interpreted and she uh, pretty much told us like her, her mom had paid a coyote to, to take her from. Colombia to Texas. I'm sorry, to Mexico. When they got to Mexico, they kidnapped her and the mom had to pay a coyote again. But what the mom realized was that the coyote just threw her in the desert and like gave her a map and like, here you go. And he did that with a bunch of people and like a bunch of people like died on the way here and she made it. And then what she did was is to get here was she had memorized her mom's address. And what she did was is she got to the detention facility and she lied about where she was supposed to go. And she had memorized the address. And then what she did was is she like went when they, she got out somehow to the detention facility. She got out and she went and just stole like a couple of things and then pickpocketed money from some people. And then she got on a Greyhound bus. And when she got on the Greyhound bus, she, um, you know, they didn't ask for an idea or anything. She just got in. She was 14 at the time. So she just got in. No one asked. And she's like, oh, Missouri. Okay. And then she just hitchhiked to get to her parents. 
And I never forget, I left that and I was like, that was rough. That was, that was just wild. Like that was just wild. And after that, it snowballed because that police department told the attorneys, the attorneys told other attorneys, paralegals told paralegals. And then I was the guy that was like the human trafficking interpreter. Like I was that guy. You had mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation, Richard, that your first human trafficking experience was actually while you were still in the military, right, out in Iraq. And for those of us that don't fully understand what human trafficking entails and potentially even think of human trafficking as only one thing or one component. Like for instance, before you taught me better, uh, I understood human trafficking as um, sexual, sexual human trafficking. But there are other types of human trafficking. Would you mind sharing a bit more information about that so that we understand sort of a, get a general understanding of what these two words together uh, could actually mean? So if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, your question is, what are either the the levels or phases that or the types of of trafficking that someone can can experience? Right. Right. Okay. so when when I went to war in 2008, one of the biggest things that they were doing was they were getting kids to do things to us. Right. One of the things that they would do is they would give kids like fake AKs and have the kids go, ah, ah, and the kids don't know because a lot of those kids were excited for us to be there. Some weren't. And you had to be really careful. And like, there were a lot of times that we took chances because we were like, no one wants to shoot a kid, man. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to say it out loud. You don't want to be the guy to shoot a kid. I, I have friends that unfortunately have had to make that decision. I have a friend who he lost one of his buddies. They got in a firefight and they didn't realize it was children because it's in the middle of the night and they're just seeing rounds coming and they got night vision and they're engaging and he hesitated and his buddy got hit and then he he had to take care of the situation, unfortunately. And it's really hard what it does to you when you deal with kids. And this is why when I talk about these things, I tell people that, it's not for everybody, and it's okay to say that. Mm-hmm. Some people tell me that it's arrogance, but I don't think that people understand that I'm trying to save you from you seeing something that you're not going to be able to unsee. And people think that because you, you're desensitized, because you watch things on TV, not nah, my man. No, no, you're not. No, you're not. I've had doctors, doctors tell me that human trafficking is something that happens on Liam Neeson movies. What happened in Iraq is we had a situation where we had a we had a couple of our Iraqi police uh, get killed. What my mission, what my company's mission in Iraq was, the 463rd Military Police Company, was to do what's called PTT, Police Transitioning Training. Essentially, what that means is we go into the country, we gather up with the locals, we uh, get with local police, local military, and we teach them how to be cops. We teach them how to go serve a warrant, why you shouldn't hit a house before nine o'clock, uh, before nine o'clock at night or after five o'clock in the morning. That's prayer time. Let's be respectful of our enemies to an extent. But it's also smart to get someone while they're sleeping because mm. it's harder. It's harder for people to to react 
when when they first wake up, right? So what ended up happening is in Iraq, uh, the same way how in the States, things are divided through counties, right? Mm-hmm. They're divided through mahalas, except for you to get through certain mahalas. The time that I was there, you had to have a, an ID, right? You had to have your agencia. So what ends up happening is one night we would go through our, our routine was we go through checkpoints. We check the warrants. We find it. We check what bolos we have. Be on the lookouts. Like uh, a lot of times you'll get a when you go on. a So when you go on a mission in Iraq, you you have a list of things, right? You go two hours before and you do pre-drills. Okay, if we get shot at from the left side and we take contact, what do we do? If, if the third person gets hit, what do we do? If the driver goes down, what do we do? If the car keeps going, what do we do? If the fire suppression system goes out, what do we do? If we're taking fire and the, the gunner goes out, who's going to return fire? What's a priority? Casualty evacuation or returning fire? Well, you got to stop the threat. So you go through that every single day. And then you go into your mission briefing. And on your mission briefing, everybody has to know what's going on. You have to know what routes we're going to take, what routes are we going to take if we take fire, what's going to make us return back RP if, if, we, if we have certain casualties, how to do a nine-line medevac, how to be able to take, uh, how to take fire and return fire, where to return fire, how to set up a line of fire, a line of assault, and all these things. We had to teach them that. What ends up happening one night is uh, we go early in the morning and we go to one of our checkpoints. and. I I get out and I had like a weird smell. It, it was just a weird smell as I started approaching the, the checkpoint and the smell just stuck with me. And when I poked, I immediately when I smelled something, I don't know what it was to this day. I, I can't explain it to you. But when I smelled it, I immediately like went up. And when you see someone pull their weapon up, everybody has a job. If you're... T- I left, you're going to check my flank. If you're to my, if you're to my right, you're going to check my flank. If you're to my left, you're going to aim at whatever I'm aiming and you're going to flank him. So that way, in case he tries to run away, if you're in the back, you're going to make sure and look around. If you're in a gun, you're going to do something. And we found two of our Iraqi police dead. Uh, They've been shot in the head assassination style. For a week, this kept happening and we lost a couple people, a couple Iraqi police. And one day we kind of just figured out like, oh, we're finding the bodies during these hours. So that means that that person is coming in and out of the village and they just don't want anyone to see them. So you have something that's called an MO, right? Uh, Modus operandi. And what that means is that at the time, we knew that the people who did that, who didn't want to be seen, were people who were like assassins. Like they were guys that they were, they were hitmen basically for, for Al-Qaeda. One morning, we, we got lucky. And I'm out checking IDs and I'm going down the line and I see a kid, like a kid behind the wheel, which you don't really see. And the kid's just staring at me. I don't know what it was, but when I saw him, he had his hands on the wheel and I went, I go, Habibi. And he like went from here to like here. And as soon as he went like that, I came up and I started coming up and I was like, all I said was I got one. And Sergeant Charles comes from the other side and I walk up to him and I'm like, immediately, as soon as I see his hand, I see, I see something shiny. Cause I got, I got this close to him and I see him stop and he's like looking at me. And when I saw him stop, I saw a gun and I was like gun, but it, <laughs> you know, looking back, uh, it could have been a detonator, <laughs> you know, it could, he could have just been rigid, like, ah, oh, Akbar, here you go. You know? Oh um, gosh. yeah. Thinking back on it now. Right. So 
<laughs> we we pick him up. It's just a kid, man. It's 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 a freaking kid. And I I noticed like I had him in my truck because I had an extra person, so we needed we needed a gun on him because we found AK forty seven rounds on him. We found Semtex. We found multiple agencies, multiple passports, which that's the the giver right there. Multiple passports. That was the scary one because it's like, why? And the whole time, the protocol is you don't talk. You don't talk and you cover their face because you don't want them to see everybody. So like as soon as we cuffed them, we we kept them on the car. And at that point, we decided like we're going to bag and tie. So bag and tie means we're going to we're going to take him somewhere else and he doesn't need to see where he's going. And when you looked at his hands, his hands had like, if you see my hands, you see all this right here and you see the calluses right here. So that comes from holding a gun a lot of times. And that also comes from jujitsu and fighting. Like you don't get calluses and messed up fingers like that just because you've done something to that. Mm-hmm. I kind of realized and I, I, I told, uh, uh, I told Pittman, Jared Pittman in the back, I go, yo, dude, like, don't, don't take your eye out of him. Like, don't take your eye out of him. So Pittman just sat right next to him and pulled his gun and just stared at him and had the gun right here the whole time. Because they were more scared of of handguns than they were of long guns for some reason. And Pittman, Pittman said in English, is like, if you move, we're going to have to redecorate the car. So please don't make me clean you up. Mm-hmm. And he like looked at him and like didn't say anything. We get to the detention facility. They process him. They're checking him. They're all talking. And then we sit uh, when they're at the interrogation room. And there's a a warrant officer that comes in and he was the interrogator and they're talking, they're talking and they go in and they're talking to him in English. And he's just looking at them like stone cold. And the the guys come out and they say, I think he speaks English. And he goes, well, he hasn't spoken the whole time. Like he hasn't talked. He hasn't said anything. And he goes, he speaks English. I'm going to try something. So he goes back in and he goes, you know, this just isn't working. Let's just throw him in with gen pop and just let him have his way. He's, you know, he's like 14, 15. And as soon as he said that the kid went like this and he goes, you speak English. He goes, stop playing with me. And immediately the kid like started talking. He's like, ah, you know, all, all praise to, you know, their God. And he's like, I'm here to commit martyr against America. And like you, you, you see these things in videos, but when you see it live, it, it, it just like, you really realize like, oh, there are people who are like, there are people who will take things that far. You know, there are people in this world. And he explained that when he was 14, he went to a camp. They took him from his village and he was the oldest. So they took him from this village and they taught him how to shoot from like a young age. And um, he he was basically, he admitted to to like killing RIPs. But we already knew because we had the gunpowder residue, the gun, the, the gun ballistics and stuff like that. We'd done you know, the people who do that, they had done that and they'd given us the information like, yeah, this is where this is. And it was terrifying, man, because what most people don't understand is that that's child trafficking. What that's called is child war trafficking is what that's called. And that happens in this world. That's happening right now in India. That's happening right now in Afghanistan. It's happening right now in Iraq. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in places in Central and South America where they take kids and they basically indoctrinate them into some sort of extreme behavior. I mean, 
you know, I, I told you about the, the kid that was from Mara Salvatrucha and he was 13. He was just 13 and he had already killed people because they took him from his house and they were like, we need the oldest kid. And, and you know, that's, that's called right there a, a child soldier is what that's called. And it's, it's one of the, the types of human trafficking that you have, right? So you have child trafficking, sex trafficking, servitude, right? Or indefinite servitude also, which is like debt or forced labor. You have organ trafficking, and then you have child, uh, child, sold, child, child soldiers, right? What people don't understand is that all of those things have the same uh the same processes to get to it right like when we talk about human trafficking people don't understand what human trafficking is mm -hmm. it's actions plus means plus purpose equals trafficking your actions by recruiting harboring uh transporting hiding um you know patronizing abusing uh moving recruiting that's the process right for the means of For, by the means of force, coercing, abusing, uh, you know, any other bad thing, coercing, right? Uh, with the purpose of either a commercial sex act or labor or service of some sort. That's it. That th that's the two things that you can you can put them to. That equals human trafficking. When you have all of those three things combined, and I I when I teach it, right? I teach it like a math formula. I teach it like either process means ends, right, equals trafficking, or actions means purpose equals trafficking. That's what human trafficking is. That's why I tell people, like, the probability that you've ran into someone that's done that is higher than you think. Higher, way higher than you think. The problem is, is that we don't look around. You know, we just don't look around. That's hopefully that answers your, your trafficking question and your, your question about Iraq. Because that, yeah, I've never told that story so in depth. I appreciate yeah, that. No. no, I think that it's important that we understand um, that that while many of us, our mind goes to one specific category uh, for human trafficking, what it all involves. And of course, these experiences that you encountered along the way and ultimately becoming what would be your main focus with interpreting for uh yeah, years. About, yeah about three years every day <laughs> yeah every day okay. so one of the things that i realize is interpreting interpreting helped me understand my my trauma right because as an interpreter you listen you process you analyze and then you command right The problem that I came to realize is that I put myself in so many traumatic things that I became so desensitized that when I would see things, I would just act normal. Whereas most people would 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 just probably puke or be like, oh, I don't want to talk about this, you know, and it was interpreting that helped me because I realized like, okay. Where is this coming from? Why am I feeling like this? And, and this is where it's difficult because you have to like, excuse my French, you can't bullshit yourself, right? Like your mental health is kind of like interpreting. This is why every class that I teach, I, I do a 10 minute speech on mental health. I don't care if people don't like it. I really will wipe my, if you don't want to buy the class, I don't care. But every single class that you take of mine, all nine of them, there is at least 10 minutes of me talking about mental health.
because no one tells interpreters, hey, man, you could get PTSD from this. Hey, man, you could get imposter syndrome from this. Mm -hmm. Um, This is what you should, you know, this is what it looks like. So what I realized with my mental health is I did the same thing I do with interpretation. Okay, why? What am I going to do? Well, why? Why? Where can this go? Or, okay, well, why am I thinking like this? Well, where can this thought process lead me? Does this thought process help me? Okay, then I need to stop. And then what I learned through therapy is just because you're feeling a certain way doesn't mean that you have to react on it. And that's the number one thing that like I learned through therapy and through jujitsu is don't react emotionally and make a permanent decision on a temporary feeling. So that's the number one thing that I I came to learn through interpreting because just like in jujitsu, right? Like if I get upset because someone's messing with me and I overextend my hand and I get arm barred, well, that's on me. That also means that there's times that I just don't want to be around people, you know, like I just don't, I don't, I don't want to be around people. I don't, you know, I have, I, I I like to say that my wife is my emotional support animal um, because (laughs) she, I I could have the crappiest day ever and I go hang out with my wife and it's awesome. And now that I'm a dad, it's even more awesome Mm because I have two, two people that I can give a lot of, a lot of love to and just be there for them too. But that's how how I deal, at least with my mental health. And that's why I'm so, so big on it, because, you know, man, I'm I deal with veterans a lot that they um, on a weekly basis, man, there's someone that's having a, a a breakdown, you know, and I'm there to, like, just calm them down. And that's the thing is, like, as an interpreter, you know, like I told you earlier, I was telling you earlier when they called, <laughs> like, how'd you hear about me? Oh, on Google. Perfect. All right, let's go. Because you have to be, you have to be that calm in the storm, man. Especially yeah. as an interpreter, because a good interpreter and a good, and I'll I'll put it to you this way: I think that a good interpreter that makes a good business person is someone who can explain our job in a way that a five-year-old could understand it, mm. and and it's also a lot of trust. Because I have to trust that what you're saying is truthful. I have no idea if what you're saying is truthful. One of the things that I really appreciate, uh, Richard, about your story is the fact that um, included with all this, um, I want, I'm going to use the word dark because I feel like these things come from a from a really dark place and you have to be able to have some sort of thick skin Um you know, to, for lack of a better word, to be able to, to even show up for these types of assignments. Um, and I know that you mentioned that, uh, three years may seem like a, like a short period of time, but I think with such a dark and heavy type of topic and on a daily basis, it probably felt like forever for you. And here I'm just (laughs) guessing, right? Like, yeah, like an internal. No, you're right. You're no one's ever, no one's ever figured that out. Like normally people just make the comment like, oh, it's three years. What could you learn in three years? And let me tell you something. If you give me a day, I could probably be pretty good at something. If you give me six months, I'm going to be pretty damn good at it. You give me a year or more, like good luck, bro. I'll, I'll learn or know everything that I need to know. And I'll be able to like share that wisdom with other people. Because it's it's just a matter of having focus. That's it. It's just a matter of 
having focus. Like everything is is like that. And unfortunately, I wish my paychecks would have reflected that. But, you know, you know, that's a that's a whole other part of it. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like these conversations, these type of assignments, one thing and then the pay is a whole other thing. But that's yeah. that's throughout the whole industry. Uh, you know, that, that's definitely yes. a complaint that everyone that everyone has. But what I was going to say is that I appreciate the fact that amidst the conversations, you are dropping these you know, little nuggets of very important information that if we're not paying attention, we're missing. Richard is talking about, you know, the the mental health aspect that although we do try to cover uh, during interpreting training and stuff like that, uh, perhaps it's not in in as depth as as it should be. Uh, he spoke about uh, relying on jujitsu and he spoke about therapy and he talked about uh, being surrounded by good people, by good friends, by individuals, such as, for instance, uh, one of them being his wife, that he's that you're able to surround yourself with 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 these individuals to support you as you go along. Of course, each each thing, I think it, with its own separate thing, right. Uh, with its own separate assistance, because it's not like, you know, you could rely on necessarily your wife to support you throughout the journey completely. I think that at some point jujitsu is going to take care of one thing. The therapy will take care of another and knowing that you have a supportive spouse that understands the work and the stress behind it is, is also going to help you. So in combination, but the key thing here being that Richard has mentioned the fact that mental health is important and that he's taking uh, has taken actionable steps to be able to sort of support support that journey, right? Because it's it's just such a, and I don't even know what what word to describe it as other than dark. And then in in when we had our pre session, I called you an unorthodox interpreter because it's like <laughs> you you have you have aspects of the interpreting business and training, obviously, but come on, how much are you going to be able to say the interpreter needs clarification or, you know, would you please pause for the interpreter to be able to render? But it's mm -hmm. like in these types of cases, I mean, you can't. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. You can't. Um, you, you, uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story. Uh, and I actually haven't told this one. I had a, a family of like a few kids that, Half of them had been, uh, I had, had a few, but this one specifically, I never forget. This girl had just met her sister and her sister had been trafficked all the way from Central America. And we're in a meeting when we got her to a, a safe house and we did all this other stuff. And I get called and we go, we get a transport to go to the safe house and all this other stuff. What ends up happening is that the, the siblings are there. Because they had removed them from the home. And the girl is there and she's like really nervous. You know, she's never met these kids. She's she was like, I think like 11 or 12, something like that. And we get there and this little girl was like six or seven. And the oldest tells the story like in front of all the kids, like how she got to the U.S., you know, and it's it's brutal. Like, it's brutal. And she she tells the story and this little girl's just in the corner going like this and the attorney goes the guardian ad litem goes hey do you, you know this is your sister you know any questions are you excited you know do, do you have any if she feels scared or anything and you know do you feel scared that that could happen to you and the little girl goes nah i live in america 
And everybody started laughing. And I was the only one in the room that kind of just looked at her and looked at everybody. I'm like, I don't find this funny. Like, I don't know how you're laughing about that. Like, I literally and dude, you've heard me. I've said some messed up jokes to you before. Like, I've, I've sent you some jokes that you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I laughed. But like, that's just one of those things that it's like it's contextual, right? Comedy is contextual. So to me, like I heard that and everybody laughed and I kind of just sat there and I go, wow, what a way to just say, uh, yeah, fuck that. Mm -hmm. That's not my problem at such a young age. But at the same time, man, like you look at that situation and those kids where they were removed and you're like, well, yeah, that that goes to to show, you know, and guess what? While everybody was laughing, I had to stay there and just bite my lip because I couldn't say anything. I'll give you another one. I'm in court and this this attorney asks the uh it was a it was a drug case and they had made this dude was selling drugs to kids and his wife flipped on him okay a flip basically means that she suicide she was with him and then she went to the cops one way or another they had told her that he was cheating on her with the courier and they had text messages text messages have you ever done a phone dump? Have you ever translated like a phone dump? Do you know what that is? I, I, I know what it is, but I've never had to translate a phone dump. No, they are the most fun and best <laughs> paid jobs ever because you have to translate everything. Cheese, man. Everything. <laughs> right. Cheese, man. Right. So I'm going to be real honest to you. I have never seen so many pics in my life. Until I started getting phone dumps. It is wild to me. The amount of uh, genital pictures that people send. Do you know what this woman said when they put her on the stand? And his attorney was like, she was in on it. We're going to discredit her. The first question he asked was, why did you go to the cops? You were involved in this. ¿Por qué usted fue a la policía? Usted estaba envuelta en esto. And she looked at him and she went, porque me las pegó. And I'm in court and I heard that and my eyes went like this and I immediately went, because he cheated on me. And I had to like compose myself because it was such a mic drop moment that even me, I was like, oh, you have nothing else. Like you have <laughs> nothing else. You're going to try to discredit her and it's not going to work now because she's told you why. And it's a valid reason. A and, woman's wrath. Oh, bro. They 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 ended up um it was there was a plea. They they made a plea deal. Cause <laughs> cause the attorney realized, like, oh no, we're screwed, screwed. Like you cheated on you didn't tell me that. And you you know, you know how it is. You're in court and you hear as the interpreter, you know, you go in and it's like, hey, I need the interpreter. It's like, you didn't tell me you cheated on your wife. Oh, I don't know, but it was just one time. You know, I don't know how they have access to that. Because they have your phone tap, Manuel. You know, like I'm just I'm just like saying, like, right. you hear those things, and then you just go home and you're like. Dude, I remember, I don't know if this happens to you. I remember coming back uh, from like cases and stuff and I would sit outside and I'd have like a drink or like I'd smoke a cigar. That's like my thing. And I remember one time I went to a party and someone was like complaining about how they needed new clothes and how they needed to get like this done for the house. And I got so mad because I looked at her and I wanted to say like, there's people that don't even have water. And you're bitching about your clothes? Like, really? And that's when I realized, like, ah, I got an issue. Like, I got I to gotta get help. Because it was like, yeah. 
because I was like, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be mad about that. Why am I mad about that? Like that lady doesn't know that I had a shit day. Like, but that's that's some of the things that happen. It's just no, crazy. I could I could only imagine situations like that. And of course, you know, you you have so many wild stories. But yeah, I could in my mind, I, I'm seeing myself in something like that and probably going, oh, damn. Um, you know, when, when it's going down in my mind, but as the interpreter, you know, poker face. <laughs> can I share, can I share with you this? And yeah. and we actually did an episode on, on my podcast where we talked about my cases and my wife shared this. When I first started dating my wife, I was heavy. Like I had probably like 30, 40 active cases at that time. You know what I told my wife, <laughs> my girlfriend at that time, what do you do for a living? I'm an interpreter. Oh, for the schools? Absolutely. My phone would ring at one o'clock in the morning and I would have to leave the room. And she's like, well, why you gotta leave? I go, ah, well, I also have the law enforcement because uh, the, the PD would use me like if they had a traffic stop or something and they needed like assistance, mm-hmm. they'd call. So that's how I got away with that. But, you know, you, that can only happen so many times before a woman goes, why the hell does he have to leave in the middle of the night? He's a school interpreter. So one day in, it was February 14th, uh, we were on a date and we were actually dating at that point. And I get a call and I can't, I can't remember cause I get it confused, but she remembers it was either, uh, one where the mom was sleeping with the dad in the parking lot or, oh no, no, no. I remember it was, we called this the Jerry Springer case. We had a woman that her, she had a, she had a kid and she just would not give us like the father. She would give, we had done 12 DNA tests on her. And what the social worker would do is they would call and tell them that person's not the father. And one day they did that and I'm in the car with her and they're like, Richard, I need you right now. We, we got to fix this. And I'm like, I got someone in the car. They go, they can sign an NDA. And they just call the lady and they go, and when it comes to the, just like Jerry Springer, just like Jerry Springer, media, yeah, just like that. And when it comes to uh, that person's not the father. And <laughs> this is when I almost pooped myself. I hear in the background go, and then the phone hangs up. And I'm sitting there. And the first thing that I thought was, oh, my God, I just heard somebody get killed. Like, that was the first thing I heard because it was the dude. It was the voice. I recognized the voice. It was the voice of the dude that she had been dating at that time. And I was like, oh, no. So my, my girlfriend at that time, she goes, okay, what's going on? <laughs> like, what do you do for a living? This doesn't make sense. So at that point, I took her back home, had her sign an NDA. <laughs> and then, yeah, this, and I married this person. This person married me, by the way. And I, I had like my notebook and I just let her look through my notes. And I was like, this is what I do. This is why I've been like in the middle of the night. Sometimes I have to go and I come back and I just sit outside and I smoke a cigar and I don't talk. This is why sometimes when we go out, I just like, I just space out um, when I'm, I'm reading through my notes and stuff like that. And the first thing she did was she just hugged me and she goes, that's so badass." And she, yeah, she stayed around. And she stayed, stayed around, around and she that. married yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, she did. She did. She, um, yeah, she, she stuck around, man. Even well, Richard, I like, I know that whoever's listening is also stuck around. Thanks to the stories <laughs> that you've been sharing. 
But of course, you know, our episode does have to come to an end eventually, sadly, even though I know you've got so many more stories. <laughs> However, I will leave it up to the audience to connect with you to be able to uh, continue sharing these stories, because, of course, you have your own training program now that you also share in addition to uh, your own podcast and just your own social media platforms. So uh, the last thing, a couple last things I'd like to ask you, uh, the first one being if someone, I don't know why, but perhaps after listening to this episode is interested somehow in being able to um, become part of this particular area or specialization of interpreting, what would you recommend to them in terms of what they need to, to do to prepare maybe mentally prepare or whatever else you might you might want to recommend. But what would be your recommendation if someone says, I want to get started in something like this? Where would they begin? What should they do? I think there's there's a few things that they could do. First of all, they have to be really good at a language. So I highly recommend seasoned interpreters to volunteer their time. There's different organizations like Raices, uh there's a couple human trafficking organizations in Minnesota that they need help. Right now, the names elude me, but if you Google Minnesota uh, advocate, advocacy attorneys for human trafficking or Minnesota human trafficking places, there's a ton of those places that I know for a fact. Uh, I'm in touch with a couple of them still um, that they they need they need help, you know, and all you got to do is just if you can volunteer like a few hours, do that. Right. The other thing is. You have to be like a pretty good seasoned interpreter. You have to be. And when I mean seasoned, to me, what a seasoned interpreter is, is someone that either understands or has a specialty in like legal or medical. Preferably medical, in my opinion, because there's going to be a lot of slang and a lot of terms that you're going you're gonna to hear, right? The medical portion of it, I always say medical interpreters are amazing. I, I, don't, I don't do well watching body parts and stuff. And I don't understand enough to even like go. It's too much for me to study versus the, the, the return that I'll have. The third thing you should do is you should try to read as much as you can about that topic. I offer a class through trans interpreting that I would dare say it's probably one of the best classes out there. Not because I put it together, but because this is what people have said. I think that there's way more things that I could add to the class, but people also have to understand is you have me for three hours and it's never three hours because when we get done with a class, I always stick around for a little bit because people either want to talk to me about something. Uh, they want to talk to me about interpreting. They want to talk to me about mentoring. They want to talk to me about something that I said on the podcast. They want to talk to me about a joke that I saw online that I said, or they just want to ask me if I'm single, which that <laughs> that happens no joke, Mireya. That that has happened, and it's very awkward because oh, well, my, because guess who guess who one of my moderators is for the class. <laughs> Wifey. So guess who see that message? Guess who sees that message first? Sometimes yeah. it's my wife because I'm I'm teaching. My wife is sitting next, just looking at the questions and going, "Question, right?" Because yeah, yeah. you know, I get it. I get them. They have they have their own people. I just say here, so I don't have to look at the questions. I can just go here and teach and ta da da, and they're like, "Question, this is an important one, okay?" Um, but it's through trans interpreting. I'm actually teaching it August nineteenth 
uh, for three hours in, I think, in the early afternoon. Uh, it'll be, I think it's 89 right now. It's either 89 or 100 uh, for, for three hours with me. And then the other thing is, is this is the best piece of business advice that I learned from the One Million Cups. And it'll be four things. I said three, it'll be four. Talk to someone who's done it at a high level and then just ask them. That's the best thing you can do. I unfortunately have never met another interpreter that has done even a quarter of the cases that I've done. So I had to kind of like build a blueprint Mm. for me to figure it out. And one of the biggest things that I can tell interpreters is keep good notes. Like, don't scribble. Don't be like, if you're going to scribble because you need to like scribble, right? Have a separate notebook for that. But have a notebook with good notes. Who, what, when, where, how, why. That's it. That's all you need to put. What time was it? Who was there? What happened? When did it happen? Did anything else happen? How did it happen? When, uh, who, what, when, where, how, why? And, you know, why were you there? The why could be I was there because this company called me and they sent me. Perfect. Now I have something that I can trace. Because you're going to realize, man, as you get older and you've been doing it for a while, that those notes, you, you can learn a lot from it. You can learn a lot, a lot, a lot from it. And you can also start to see like, oh, I have a problem with this. Why do I have a problem with that? Why do I feel like this? Oh, so this is when this started to bother me. And then you can go to your therapist or you can talk it out with a good friend mm-hmm. and be like, man, I feel like this. And it's like, oh, well, this is why you're seeing something that most people should feel that way. And most people just don't because they're either too scared or their brains can't comprehend that this is something that could happen. So that's where I recommend everyone have a good set of language skills, be a seasoned interpreter, have a specialty that you can take courses at the same time and find someone who's doing it in your in your field. Find someone who's done it and just ask them. And listen, I'm more available than people think. You would be amazed how available I am nowadays. But not try me. <laughs> yeah. Richard, I, for one, sincerely appreciate your time and your willingness to come on this platform to share your stories. The last question I have for you before we conclude today's episode is where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? You can go to transinterpreting.com and get the human trafficking class. You can go to Richard Avilas on Facebook, which is the only one that has like the weird Pokeball on the hand and stuff like that. And it has my language ninja logo on the shirt. It's like a drawing. Uh, You can go to Instagram and it's language underscore ninja. And if you want to know anything about me, honestly, you can either message Transinterpreting through info at transinterpreting.com or you can message me directly uh, if you just want to talk on on Facebook or on, on Instagram. And then you can reach out to me at R as in Romeo, A as in Alpha, B as in Boy, D-E-L-440 at gmail.com. Uh, and if you want to hear wild things that I say, you can listen to the the Rico podcast and everywhere that you can download it. It's the only Rico podcast that you'll see my face on. But that's pretty much where you can access me. And if you're in Missouri, come see me do comedy. Just don't go during the winter. No, 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 no. Do not go during the winter. No, God, no.
rough. It's rough. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as Brand the Interpreter, or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.